Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Hello, everyone. Episode 13, Anticipatory Resoluteness. And it's here where Heidegger brings together chapters one and two of Division Two, the discussion of being towards death and the discussion of conscience. And he brings those two concepts together in the notion of anticipatory resoluteness, anticipatory resoluteness, and we'll explain that. And then there's this little digression on method in 63, and then in 64, there's a very interesting discussion of the question of the self or the subject. So that's what we're going to do in this discussion. And just looking ahead, once we finish this chapter, chapter three, division two, then we have really completed the analytic of Dasein in the mode of authenticity. We've completed the analytic of Dasein in the mode of authenticity, but things are not over. Once the analysis of Dasein's authentic being a whole is completed, then the task is one of repeating, repeating the analytic of everydayness from the perspective of temporality. So what's going to happen in the next chapter, and it is much more interesting than it sounds, is we're going to repeat the analysis of average everydayness in Division 1, but in the light of temporality. We'll also ask the question, why is this repetition necessary and what is it? Okay, 61 lays out the basic problem of the chapter which is how we bring together the concepts of anticipation and resoluteness. And the way Heidegger puts this on page 349 is he says, what did death and the concrete situation of action, of taking action have in common? What did death and the concrete situation of taking action have in common? Death, being towards death, anticipation, the concrete situation of taking action, resoluteness, how those two things to be linked. So the task of 62 is the putting together of the outcomes of chapters one and two. Now, remember that the two problems that were driving the analysis in division two, the two problems left over from division one that Heidegger initiates Division 2 with are authenticity and totality. How do we get Dasein into our grasp as a whole and how do we do so authentically? This is achieved with the notion of anticipatory resoluteness. In this notion, to use a, a key concept in Being in Time, it's introduced, it's mentioned rather on page 356, the concept is modalization, that being towards death and conscience modalize each other, modalize each other. They are modalities of the same basic movement. The modality of being towards death, which is ontological and existential, and the modality of conscience, which is ontic and existential. But the point is we need both modalities. So let's take this from the two sides of the two concepts. Resoluteness is only possible if it is thought right through to the end, Heidegger says. Resoluteness is only possible if it's thought right through to the end. If resoluteness is the manner in which Dasein takes into itself its authentic potentiality for being, then this potentiality has to be thought through in relation to death as the outermost limit of potentialization. Death as the outermost limit of potentialization. 
Therefore, we can say, I'm quoting here from page 353. Heidegger says, resoluteness does not just have a connection with anticipation as with something other than itself. It harbors in itself authentic being towards death as the possible existential modality, that word again, modality of its own authenticity. This connection must be elucidated phenomenally. So it's therefore only in anticipating that resoluteness becomes fully resolute because only in relation to being towards death does resoluteness get a grip on potentiality for being as a whole. So authentic resoluteness, this is the point, has to be anticipatory resoluteness. It has to be resoluteness all the way to the end. Three, five, four halfway down the page. Only anticipatory resoluteness understands the potentiality for being guilty authentically and wholly, that is to say, primordially. Only anticipatory resoluteness understands the potentiality for being guilty authentically and wholly, that is to say, primordially. And then note here that footnote that uh, is just mark their footnote 2, Roman 2, on page 354, which is one of these moments when the ice breaks up. And I like watching the moments when the ice breaks up in Being in Time, as we saw last time in the discussion of conscience. But if you look at that footnote, it's on page 496. He says... The being guilty which belongs primordially to Dasein's state of being must be distinguished from the status corruptionis as understood in theology. Theology can find in being guilty, blah, 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 blah. A few lines further on. The existential analysis of being guilty proves nothing either for or against the possibility of sin. Taken strictly... It cannot even be said that the ontology of Dasein of itself leaves this possibility open. For this ontology, as a philosophical inquiry, knows, in quotation marks, in principle, nothing about sin. Strange footnote. What's it doing there? It seems to be in the wrong chapter. This should have been in chapter two. It should have been the last chapter, maybe. Heidegger says that the analysis of being guilty says nothing either for or against the possibility of sin. And then he adds, taken strictly, streng genommen, as they say in German, and, you know, uh, phenomenology is a rigorous science, a strenger Wissenschaft, then taken strictly, the ontology of Dasein as philosophical inquiry knows nothing about sin. This is a very peculiar pronouncement. So sin is not a rigorously philosophical concept, Heidegger seems to be saying. But if that's the case, if sin is not a rigorously philosophical concept, then could we say that falling or guilt or anxiety are rigorous philosophical concepts? I think it's an open question. And I think, although this would be a separate discussion which I have pursued elsewhere in a book I wrote called The Faith of the Faithless. Um, I think that Heidegger could be said to be offering a redescription of original sin in his analysis of guilt. Anyway, let's pick it back up on page 355. We're still in paragraph 62. Resoluteness discloses the primordial truth of existence. Resoluteness discloses the primordial truth of existence. To such truth, there must correspond a holding for true, Heidegger, Heidegger says, a holding for true. And this um, holding for true constitutes a being certain 
Heidegger says, being certain there in German, this is on 355, you can see it about a third of the way down the page, is um, gewiss sein, being certain. And Heidegger here is running together a number of things. He's running together the link between conscience as gewissen and certainty as gewissheit, as death is something of which Dasein is certain, this means that resoluteness must be constantly certain of death. Right? There's an appeal to certainty here, which is linked at the level of language to conscience, right? Gewissheit, gewissen. On 3.5.6, Heidegger writes, this is about five lines down on 3.5.6, since resoluteness is constantly certain of death, in other words, since it anticipates it, resoluteness thus attains a certainty which is authentic and whole. What this means is that the certainty of resoluteness consists in the constant reiteration, the constant reiteration of its being towards death, of its finitude. And this is what Heidegger seems to mean in this passage by the allusion to repetition. Right? Repetition, which in, uh, in Heidegger's German means something also like fetching back, right? to fetch something back. Authentic resoluteness is the repetition of the certainty to itself of death. Authentic resoluteness is the repetition of the certainty to itself of death. 355, three lines up from the bottom. Heidegger writes, on the contrary, this holding for true, holding for true for Wahrhalten, as a resoluteness holding oneself free for taking back is the authentic resoluteness which resolves to keep repeating itself. Resolves to keep repeating itself. Thus, in an existential manner, one's very lostness in irresoluteness gets undermined. This is the point. Authentic resoluteness is the repetition of the certainty to itself of death. Right. So the way in which... Dasein comports itself is through and as repetition. That's the key point. Repetition is absolutely central here. And I've got a lot more to say about the question of repetition, but just one kind of pop cultural reference because I, I like these things. I'm thinking here, I'm a fan of the full, F-A-L-L, the mighty full and their lead singer, Marky e. Smith, who left us not that long ago, is a very early song by The Fall called Repetition. It's from, I think, their first album, uh, Live at the Witch Trials. The three R's, the three R's, the three R's, which are not reading, writing, arithmetic, but they're repetition, repetition, repetition. So for Heidegger, the way in which we maintain our resoluteness up to being towards death is through the repetition of ourselves to ourselves. And I want to come back to that thought later on. Okay, but that's just looking at things from the side of resoluteness. Resoluteness has to be certain, take conscience into itself and repeat that. What about the side of anticipation? From the side of anticipation, it looks a little different. A little, little different. And this takes us back to the idea of being towards death as ontologically or existentially correct, but lacking any ontic existential facticity. And Heidegger tries to answer this question on 357. He says on the second line, we have now shown that anticipation is not just a fictitious possibility, which, have been, which we have forced upon Dasein, it is a mode of an existential potentiality of a being that is attested in Dasein. Attested, that key word in the previous chapter. Conscience is the attestation 
the witness, the testimony of being towards death. A mode which Dasein exacts of itself, if indeed it authentically understands itself as resoluteness. Anticipation is not some kind of free-floating behavior, but must be conceived as the possibility of the authenticity of that resoluteness, which has been attested in an existential way, a possibility hidden in such resoluteness and thus attested therewith. Authentic thinking about death is a wanting to have a conscience, which has become transparent to itself in an existential manner. And he makes a similar point a couple of lines further down, where he says, the question of the potentiality for being as a being a whole is one which is factical and existential. It is answered by Dasein as resolute. So anticipation being towards death is ontologically correct. Resoluteness is the way in which we can find a testimony for that anticipation in the form of conscience. Then there's a very powerful paragraph uh, still on 357. I want to read to you. It's the last full paragraph on 357. Anticipatory resoluteness is not a way of escape fabricated for the overcoming of death. Overcoming of death. It is rather that understanding which follows the call of conscience and which frees for death the possibility of acquiring power over Dasein's existence and of basically dispersing all fugitive self-concealments. Nor does wanting to have a conscience which has been made determinate as being towards death signify a kind of seclusion in which one flees the world. Rather, it brings one without illusions into the resoluteness of taking action. Look at this, the resoluteness of taking action. Neither does anticipatory resoluteness stem from idealistic exactions soaring above existence and its possibilities. It springs from a sober understanding of what are factically the basic possibilities for Dasein, along with the sober anxiety which brings us face to face with our individualized potentiality of a being, there goes an unshakable joy in this possibility. In it, Dasein becomes free from the entertaining incidentals with which busy curiosity keeps providing itself, primarily from the events of the world. But the analysis of these basic moods would transgress the limits which we have drawn for the present interpretation by aiming towards fundamental ontology. Long quote, but it's a very interesting paragraph. Anticipatory resoluteness is not an overcoming of death. It's rather a way in which death has a power over us, over Dasein, that disperses all the fugitive self-concealments of the they. The fugitive self-concealments of falling into the they, into what they do. And uh, we note here again the kind of um, paradox of power that runs through these chapters of being and time. Anticipatory resoluteness is the way in which we can become powerful, gain power over ourselves, and that power shatters itself against its impotentialization in being towards death. It's the possibility of impossibility. As Heidegger says, uh, two chapters back. So anticipatory resoluteness does not signify a flight from death or a flight from the world. On the contrary, it brings one into the resoluteness of taking action. In quotation marks, taking action. Along with sober anxiety, and notice the emphasis upon 
the sobriety of anxiety. It's not drunken anxiety. It's sober, clear-eyed. Along with that, there is a, an unshakable joy. Joy. This, uh, this could be the basis for a joke, but uh, I won't make it, but I will. Uh, joy in German is a Freude. So if you're interested in, in the relationship between Heidegger's existential analytic and psychoanalysis, you could ask the question, well, where is Freud in being in time? Well, the name Freud means joy. So the joy here is the joy of sober anxiety. The sober anxiety is joyful. It's the joy of assuming one's finitude. And Heidegger, um, you know, with references like this to joy, teases us, we could say, with the possibility of other basic moods, namely that it's not just anxiety that's going to do the disclosive work in the existential analytic. Perhaps there's a space for joy Perhaps, as Heidegger says in the 1929 lecture course, Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics, deep boredom can um, do that work of disclosure. Joy will come up again in chapter four, in the next chapter, just to look ahead. So that's paragraph 62. That's, you know, what we've done there is we've knitted together anticipation and resoluteness into this concept of anticipatory resoluteness and with that we've brought together the two analyses of the first two chapters of division two and in a sense we've come to a kind of halting point now this takes us into paragraph 63 i'm going to skip over some of what's happening here in 63, because there's a lot to get through in this chapter. But let me make a, a few points. What Heidegger's really concerned with in this kind of pause in the analysis is the question of method. And he raises the question of violence. Not physical violence, but hermeneutic violence. References to violence kind of are scattered on page 359. You can find them for yourself. About halfway down the page, in particular on 359. The claim is, the claim is that which we ourselves are, are that which we ourselves are, is ontologically furthest from us, and therefore we need to wrest our authentic being from the tendency to falling that defines our everyday being in the world. So this resting, this pulling of ourselves from our tendency towards falling requires a, a counter-pull, what is called here a pull, what is called in German a Gegenzug, a counter-tug, a pull or a train in the opposite direction. And this is what Heidegger means by violence. Right? So in order to lay bare who we are authentically, we have to violently push against our tendency towards falling that defines our being. Right? So this is what's meant by doing violence, doing hermeneutical violence to ourselves by pushing ourselves against our tendency towards falling. And there's a lot we could say here about the meaning of violence and we could connect it, we could connect it to other discussions of violence which are a little bit earlier in someone like um, Sorel, uh, Reflections on Violence of, of Sorel, early 20th century, and then famously and you know, more or less contemporary with Heidegger's thinking in the thinking that emerges into being in time, Walter Benjamin and Benjamin's critique of violence. 
So we could, if we wanted to, connect what Heidegger is saying about violence to those discussions of violence, if we wanted. Let's put that to one side. It's a big topic, an interesting topic. But the point is that authenticity requires a violent operation. It requires that we exert a violence with regard to ourselves. We could think about other contexts in Heidegger's work where he talks about violence. One, one context in particular is a book called Introduction to Metaphysics, which is very important for all sorts of reasons, notably its discussion of the Antigone, where, and in that uh, book, Introduction to Metaphysics, Dasein, us, the human being, is understood as the violent one as the one who, who wrenches free from the they, wrenches free from the rabble, the one who becomes uncanny, who pushes out into nothingness. And that requires uh, a violence with regard to ourselves. That's the first point I wanted to make in relation to 63. The second point is that if fundamental ontology is violent, then Heidegger asks, is the interpretation of Dasein arbitrary? If Heidegger's analysis is violent, well then does it mean it's just arbitrary? Heidegger's just forcing this on us. Heidegger takes this up on 360. And um, I mean, obviously the, the, the answer to the question is no, but what happens on 360 is that Heidegger backs up into a a useful and slightly defensive summary of being in time on 361, 362. If you're looking for a summary of the whole argument, if you're feeling a bit uh, lost, not in the they self, but lost in the, the forest of Heidegger's words, then 361, 362 might help. So the fact that Heidegger's analysis is necessarily violent doesn't mean it's arbitrary. Third point I want to make is we get a discussion in paragraph 63, uh, a further discussion actually, of the problem of presuppositions in fundamental ontology and whether Heidegger is presupposing what he is analysing and whether he is therefore moving in a circle. Is Heidegger's pattern of reasoning in being in time circular? To which the answer is, of course, yes. He makes this claim on 362 at the top of uh, 363 and all the way down 363, the charge of circularity. The issue for Heidegger, as ever, is not one of avoiding circularity. The question is rather how we enter into circularity and whether we see circularity as virtuous or whether we see it as vicious. You might remember that the way in which this came up earlier in Being in Time was through a discussion of understanding and the relationship between understanding and interpretation. Um, namely that we understand and uh, our understanding is laid out through acts of interpretation. But this structure of interpretation and understanding is itself circular. So circularity isn't something to be avoided, it's something to be accepted and entered in the right way. So on 363, uh, second line at the top of the page, Heidegger says, we cannot ever avoid a circular proof in the existential analytic because such an analytic does not do any proving at all by the rules of the logic of consistency. So once again, it's not a question of avoiding circularity, but of approaching circularity in the right way. Throne projection is a circle. Dasein and being, Dasein uh, as the being that possesses an understanding of being, Dasein and being are also a circle. Heidegger's thinking is virtuously circular. 
That will do for uh, 63. Let's move on to 64. Care and selfhood. So this is where we get the, um, the most um, detailed discussion of the concept of the subject or the self in, in being in time. And you might remember that I discussed this in an earlier lecture, an earlier, an earlier episode. I think it was episode four um, when we looked at the um, at being with, you know, that Darzan is not just being in the world, but it's also being with others. And I think I said back then that the subject or the self is a kind of internal limit or a, a, a kind of frontier in being in time, which is continually crossed, namely the subject the self is a concept that Heidegger wants to avoid on the one hand because it always entails some kind of metaphysical thinking and it's a concept which he uh, reinstates, right? So the subject is something both avoided and reinstated. So this concept of the subject is a kind of internal frontier in the book. So this is the issue in 64. The unity of... Uh, the care structure lies in the unity of the self. A self which is first and foremost characterized by mindness. Right? Mindness. Yet how do we conceive this unity of the self? Well, the obvious answer is existentially. Right? Our unity, such as it is, must be conceived of existentially. But there's a problem here, which uh, we'll get to in a moment. So Heidegger begins in 64. This is his point of contrast in this paragraph, which is very interesting. Contrasts his approach to that of Kant in the critique of pure reason. Now, Heidegger admits, as Kant admits, as Descartes admits that the starting point for any articulation of the self lies in saying I, lies in saying I. Um, the way Heidegger argues this, as we saw at the beginning of the existential, existential analytic, is through the concept of mindness, the first concept we're introduced to. So, If we think of Kant, Kant's notion of the self says I, it says I think, and the I think is that, that which must accompany all my representations. The I think must accompany all my representations, Kant says. The argument that Heidegger makes with regard to Kant is very simple. Um, on the one hand, Heidegger says, Kant is true to the phenomenal content of the I. Or, as Heidegger says on page 366, um, Kant's analysis arises from a genuine pre-phenomenological experience. That phrase is bang in the middle of 366. Kant's analysis arises from a genuine pre-phenomenological experience. So, that's good. Yet, on the other hand, Kant interprets this content this pre-phenomenological experience of mindness interprets this content in relation to the wrong ontology. So Kant has the right intuitions with the wrong ontology. Of course, the wrong ontology for Heidegger is the ontology of the present at hand. Right? The, onto the ontology of the present at hand. As such, and as always in Heidegger's reading of Kant, 
Kant almost pulls clear of the tradition. This is the way Heidegger reads Kant. He almost pulls clear of the tradition, but falls back into it nonetheless. Right? It's a bit like um, that famous line from The Godfather. You know, that's when I got out of the mob, I got out of the mob, they pull me back in. They pull me right back in. It's that feeling of just being, you're trying to leave the tradition and they pull you back in. But let's look at the detail a little bit more here. This is 366. Let me see if I can find the quote. Yes, three quarters of the way down the page on 366. Heidegger writes, Kant makes a more rigorous attempt than his predecessors to keep hold of the phenomenal content of saying I, right, so, so far so good, yet even though in theory he has denied that the ontical foundations of the ontology of the substantial apply to the I, he slips back into this same inappropriate ontology, right? Keep that quote in one half of your mind and then put the next quote in the other half of your mind. It's on three, six, seven. Kant grasps the phenomenal content of the eye correctly in the expression, I think, or if one also pays heed to including the practical person when one speaks of intelligence in the expression, I take action. In Kant's sense, we must take saying I as saying I think. Kant tries to establish the phenomenal content of the I as res cogitans, as thinking substance, substance, thinking thing. If in doing so he calls this I a logical subject, that does not mean that the I in general is a concept obtained merely by way of logic. The I is rather the subject of logical behavior, of binding together. The I think means I bind together. All binding together is an I bind together. So let's keep those two quotes um, in mind. Um, I don't know what you know. Obviously, I don't know that in general, but I don't know what you know about Kant. And... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the transcendental unity of apperception in Kant. It's a much more simple thought than it sounds. The transcendental unity of apperception is something which is logically deduced by Kant from the fact of experience. The problem here, the problem here, as uh, many of you will, will know, is uh, the problem that's set by, by David Hume, right? uh, Edinburgh's favourite son or one of them, David Hume. David Hume sets Kant a problem in relationship to what we now call personal identity. Namely, that our personal identity, Hume says, consists merely in bundles of perceptions. Bundles of perceptions which do not seem to be gathered together into any unity, into any kind of substantial idea of the self. Now, um, Kant accepts um, Hume's challenge, right, that we are made up of bundles of perception, of episodes which, from different times, different periods, which appear to be attached, attached to the same person without us being able to kind of prove that there is a substantial, real uh, person inside of us. The way Kant makes the argument is that in order to explain the fact that experience is bound together, experience hangs together, our experiences are our experiences. In order to explain that, we have to logically presuppose uh, a transcendental unity of our perception. We have to logically presuppose that these experiences are happening to a self, but we cannot know that self in the way that someone like Descartes claims to know that self. Let's look at the um, outcome of this analysis. 
This is, this is the quotation in the middle of page 367. Heidegger writes, Kant's analysis has two positive aspects. For one thing, he sees the impossibility of ontically reducing the eye to a substance. For another thing, he holds fast to the eye as I think. Nevertheless, he takes this eye as subject again, and he does so in a sense which is ontologically inappropriate. For the ontological concept of the subject characterizes not the selfhood of the I qua self, but the self-sameness and steadiness of something that is always present at hand. To define the I ontologically as subject means to regard it as something always present at hand. The being of the I is understood as the reality of the res cogitans. And there's a long uh, footnote which follows from that. So, if you like, you know, one cheer or maybe two cheers for, for Kant, uh, but not, decidedly not three cheers for Kant. Kant hangs on to the phenomenal, the pre-phenomenological experience of the I think. And the great virtue of Kant's approach is that for Kant there is a, a cogito without an ergo sum. Right? There is an I think without a therefore I am. Namely, the, the fact of the I think does not entail for Kant any claim to the substantiality or reality of the self as a metaphysical um, entity. And that claim about the I think in Kant as, as a subject which is defined through the activity of thought is the concept that Kant's most brilliant and influential successor, Fichte, will develop in his Science of Knowledge, the Wissenschaftslehrer, when he talks about the um, subject as an activity. Right? So the I is I in Fichte. Uh, the first principle of philosophy for Fichte is an idea of thought as activity, which is the way in which Fichte tries to unify um, theoretical and uh, practical reason. But that's a, a separate topic, uh, but an interesting one. So that's the one or one and a half cheers for Kant. For Kant, the I think is a cogito without an ergo sum. There's no substantiality to the self. Yet negatively, Kant still moves within an ontology of the present at hand, which means that Kant slips back into the position of an isolated subject. This is what happens when you work with the ontology of the present at hand. You slide back uh, kind of willy-nilly into a subjectivism and you miss the phenomenon of the world, right? The phenomenon, the phenomenon of the world. On 368, Heidegger makes this point. This is about, let's see, two, four, six, eight, nine lines in, maybe 10 lines in on page 368. Kant did not see the phenomenon of the world and was consistent enough to keep the representations apart from the a priori content of the I think. But as a consequence, the I was again forced back to an isolated subject accompanying representations in a way which is ontologically quite indefinite. Now, there are ways of challenging this, uh, this approach to, to what Heidegger's doing here, ways of challenging this as a, as a reading of, uh, of Kant, in particular the way in which the subject is described by Kant in relation to practical reason, the subject of the kingdom of ends, the moral subject of the kingdom of ends, the moral subject, which is defined by respect for persons, therefore a kind of intersubjective subject in Kant. This would not be a, a wild and crazy thing to say that Kant could be redescribed as a thinker of intersubjectivity. But Heidegger's critique is that although Kant 
gets it right, as it were, pre-phenomenologically, he falls back into an isolated subject because he has the wrong ontology, the ontology of the present at hand. So if we assume that that's right about Kant, then how are things different for Heidegger's approach? Well, this is where we encounter a problem. Dasein is defined as being in the world, as I've said a thousand times in these lectures. Dasein is defined as being in the world, but this means that Dasein understands itself in terms of the world in such a radical fashion that Dasein falls into the world and it becomes a they-self. I is another, right? I is another. Je est un autre. In the world of the they, in the world of Dasman, the one, the they, I am them. I am at one with them. I think what they think, all of that stuff that we've seen before. So how does this play out? On um, page 368, Heidegger, the beginning of the last, it's just over halfway down the page on 368. What is the motive for this fugitive way of saying I? It is motivated by Dasein's falling. For as falling, it flees in the face of itself into the they. When the I talks in the natural manner, in quotation marks natural, this is performed by the they-self. What expresses itself in the I is that self which, proximally and for the most part, I am not authentically. So Dasein's selfhood is only conceivable existentially in the mode of authenticity. Heidegger conceives it as what he calls the constancy of the self, right? So most of the time we lose ourselves in the world. When we pull ourselves back from the world, authentically, we can achieve something like a constancy of the self, Heidegger says. Let me make a a long quote here. This is from page 36. Nine. This is going to be actually a, a, a rather long, a rather long quote, but it's an important quote. So halfway down the page on three six nine, selfhood is to be discerned existentially only one's authentic potentiality for being oneself. That is to say, in the authenticity of Dasein's being as care. In terms of care, the constancy of the self as the supposed persistence of the subjectum gets clarified. But the phenomenon of this authentic potentiality of a being also opens our eyes for the constancy of the self in the sense of its having achieved some sort of position. The constancy of the self in the double sense of steadiness and steadfastness is the authentic counter-possibility to the non-self-constancy which is characteristic of irresolute falling. Existentially, self-constancy signifies nothing other than anticipatory resoluteness. The ontological structure of such resoluteness reveals the existentiality of the self's selfhood. Dasein is authentically itself, in the primordial individualization of the reticent resoluteness which exacts anxiety of itself as something that keeps silent. Authentic being oneself is just the sort of thing that does not keep on saying I. But in its reticence, it is that thrown entity as which it can authentically be. Interesting quote. The persistence of the self does not get referred to any notion of the subject. The subject as hupokaimenon, as subjectum, as ground, as foundation, as metaphysical first principle. The persistence of the self is simply the experience of Dasein's anticipatory 
resoluteness. The self is constant insofar as it manifests itself as the counter-possibility or even violent counter-thrust against irresolute falling. This is, goes back to this idea of this counter-tug. Right? The constancy of the self manifests itself in a violent counter-thrust against irresolute falling, in wrenching ourselves away from the they. So Dasein is constantly itself in the reticent, reticent resoluteness that is its anxiety as something or someone silent that does not just keep on saying, I, I, right? Rather, the constancy of the self does not consist in endless stories about me and myself and I, but consists in the silent resoluteness of action in a situation, right? That's the claim that Heidegger's making. A claim for the constancy of the self as a counter-movement against the falling of the self into uh, the they. But, and this is the problem, this constancy is not constant. This constancy is only as long as Dasein authentically is. Which is not for all time, but for a while, for a moment, for the duration of what Heidegger will call soon the moment of vision. Maybe you can begin to see the problem that is appearing at this point in our analysis of Heidegger is that the cost of giving up any substantial notion of the subject, any metaphysical concept of the subject, is that the self becomes defined in terms of the unity and constancy which it ever only fleetingly is. The rest of the time, it is not itself but falls. Proximally, and for the most part, Dasein is inconstant. Right? I fall to the world. I am proximally, for the most part, an inconstant self that only becomes constant when I become authentic. Think about this, because it's uh, an interesting philosophical thoughts and interesting kind of existential and personal thoughts. In what does the unity or constancy of the self consist? Think about the idea that Kant was true to the phenomenal content of the I, the appearance of the I think to itself, but false in attributing that content to a self defined in terms of the ontology of the present at hand. For Heidegger, we must think the unity of the self existentially, without reference to any substantial, any substantialist ontology or any reference to God. The self consists in nothing else but its performative self-affirmation. The self consists in nothing else but its performative self-affirmation. A little like the subject in Descartes, which is also a performance, the performance of Descartes' thinking in the meditations and the discourse on the method. But that is done in the mode of the presence at hand. That is done in the mode of Vorhandenheit. Heidegger is trying to present, show, the consistency of the self through the anxious, resolute certainty of itself in conscience. Of course, to solve the problem of self-constancy, Descartes, 
had to introduce the idea of God and the doctrine of continuous creation. Okay, so if we think about Descartes, think about this problem in a slightly different way. So for Descartes, you know, um, everything can be doubted. I shall proceed towards the destruction of all my, all my opinions, blah, blah, blah. But I cannot, um, and I can doubt everything, but I cannot doubt the existence of the doubter who doubts. And doubting is thinking, and uh, there is a thinking thing, there is a doubting being, and that thinking is what my existence consists in. So that's the proof of the, um, the cogito. But what happens when the cogito sleeps, when the cogito has its, um, uh, is distracted? Let's just say when it sleeps. Well, uh, when I'm sleeping and I'm not thinking, am I therefore non-existent? Well, this is where, this is one of the reasons why Descartes makes the appeal to God. God is that being who underwrites the constancy of myself. So my, my cogito, my I think, is underwritten by the constant um, activity, the constant presence of God. And this was the doctrine of what was called continuous creation, that um, God is continuously creating and recreating the universe and therefore underpins us. So for Descartes, this is the thought, our self-constancy doesn't just consist in the performance of my saying, I think therefore I am, but consists in the fact that that uh, I think therefore I am rests upon the power of God. Heidegger is trying to solve the problem of self-constancy without reference to God, which means that he is in Descartes' dilemma in the Meditations, namely that the only unity of the self consists in the act whereby it asserts or performs that unity. It performs that constancy. For the rest of the time, the self is inconstant and is lost in the they-self. In other words, there is no, uh, there's no deus ex machina. There's no God we can pull out for Heidegger like there is for Descartes. And let's say that that's right. Let's say that Heidegger's right. We ourselves in some way, we, we, most of the time we fall to the world, we're distracted, we're asleep, we're watching television, we're drunk or whatever. And... Our self-constancy consists in our resoluteness for Heidegger, resoluteness thought all the way to the end in relationship to our being towards death. Once we lose the idea of God or the idea of any substantial underpinning of the self, then we're left in the following position. The constancy of the self consists in nothing more than the act whereby the self affirms itself in anticipatory resoluteness and in the repetition of that act the self is only the performance of itself the self is a performative self we're only authentic only constant for the time we decide to be resolute for the rest of the time we fall for the rest of the time the self is not itself as we will see in the next chapter of um, Being in Time, Temporality and Everydayness, the self that does not repeat itself, the self that forgets and is no longer a self, um, is a self which is an inauthentic self. The self is constant only in and through repetition. Only in and through repetition. And that's why Heidegger writes on page 355, way back in 355, anticipatory resoluteness which resolves to keep repeating itself. Anticipatory resoluteness which resolves to keep repeating itself. So Heidegger's position on the self is that we are selves. Uh, we have the possibility of a constancy of the self, 
insofar as we anticipate a being towards death and we internalize that through our resoluteness. But once that self-constancy is, uh, is released through falling to the world, then that self-constancy dissolves. And we're nothing more than that. We're nothing more than the acts, the performances that we undergo. There is nothing outside the performance of ourselves and the assurance that we give ourselves when we're being ourselves that we are those selves. The rest of the time we fall, we flee, we disperse. Okay, that will do. I'm going to come back in the next episode and complete this chapter with a discussion of ecstatic temporality. <laughs>